All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me uh, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. It's Easter Sunday, so what should you preach on today? <laughs> Not too difficult uh, to figure out what to preach on on uh, an Easter Sunday. So John chapter 20. Uh, I heard it first from Tony Morita. I'm sure others have noticed this before, uh, but I was getting to see it this year as I'm reading through Scripture, uh, starting in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis and reading. And uh, he points out this. I'm sure others have said it as well. I just know that I want to give him credit because he's the first one I heard it from. As he says this, known to say, Genesis ends with, if you read the book of Genesis, it ends with Joseph's death. If you read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. If you read Joshua, Joshua ends with Moses' death. I'll add to it, even if you were to read throughout the rest of the Old Testament and you look at king after king after king of Israel, eventually they lived and they died. You get to the end of the Gospels, and each end of the Gospels is not a burial, and it's over. Uh, it's not just a funeral procession, and it's, there is Jesus, he's dead. No, each Gospel ends with Jesus is alive. He has overcome the grave. And here's what I want to encourage you this morning. And this is kind of the roadmap of the message this morning. As you see on the screen, I think, is the effects of an empty tomb. And what does that do for us? Why is this so, you might be wondering, like, why is this such a big deal? Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ such a big deal? And as Tony Morita says after he shares about Genesis and Joseph's death, and Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death, and as we continue on and see Joshua's life ends in death, he says about the resurrection, he says this, and if Jesus has overcome the grave, that changes everything. Everything hinges on the resurrection. Our faith hinges. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he declares it. He says, listen, we might, we're, we're, like, we're, foolish, we're foolish if this is what we're living for. Like if we might as well, he says basically like the YOLO kind of statement, like you only live once, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for if Christ has not overcome the grave, we can just go live how we want to live. But he declares in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus has overcome the grave, and that changes everything. And so if you have a Bible, I want us to learn a lot. There's a lot that we can learn. I could probably preach about five different messages on this, and I'm sure I will over the years. Uh, this is a wonderful gospel, uh, John's gospel as he writes it. And so if you have a Bible, John chapter 20. We looked briefly on Friday at John 19, verse 28 uh, through 30. But this morning, I just want us to look at really this whole chapter. We're going to read it, take our time through it, and just notice a few things. So if you have a Bible, John chapter 20, starting in verse one. It says, now, on the first day of the week. I just paused there just for a second, and you're like, oh man, if you're pausing already, we got a whole, whole chapter to cover. Uh, just notice, think of this. Here's the statement. John is trying to make a point, and this, we see this. They could have said on the third day. They could have said different things about that. He says, and he's pointing out to something, and I think it's speaking something important to us, is the newness here. He's saying, on the first day of the week, this is now Sunday. For the Jew, everything was about Saturday and Sabbath. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus risen from the grave, as we're going to find out, as we know, and as we're going to see in our story this morning. Here he says, on the first day of the week, and notice, who's there first? If you read all the Gospels, all the Gospels tell various, from various perspectives this same story, but all four Gospels talk about Mary. 
And here's what I want us to understand this morning. And so I only have three points this morning, and so I'm already hitting number one, so faster than normal. And I want you to see this, though, is this. When we think about these effects of an empty tune, I want you to see and notice the grace of God through the various characters of our story this morning. We're not going to take this necessarily consecutively like I normally would. We're going to, we're going to bounce around as we look at all of chapter 20 this morning. But I want you to notice that these effects and what happens, and notice that through the grace of God, the empty tomb, what it leads to, it leads to transformed lives. It's this transforming grace of God in the lives of His people by there being an empty tomb. So listen to what happens. Notice first, Mary Magdalene. It says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. Notice, while it was still dark. This is a theme in John's gospel. He he oftentimes is showing the difference between light and dark, darkness and light. And here she comes still in the early morning. This morning as I woke up, I looked outside our window when I was downstairs in my office, and I look out, and I could see, you know, it's been terrible weather yesterday, and I'm looking out, and I could see the moon in the distance, and I could see the clouds just coming by, and it's like, oh, the clear, it's going to be a beautiful morning. And sure enough, within just a few hours, there's not a cloud to be seen in the sky. This beautiful Easter morning. Here in the calm of the night, she comes, but I want you to notice this. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Why is she coming to the tomb? Is it, notice this, is it, you know, Jesus has said many times that he would rise on the third day, that he would overcome the grave, like, let's go find out. <laughs> let's go see, is, is he actually in fact risen? It's been, it's been a few days now, let's see if he's risen. Why is Mary going to the tomb? Notice, she came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw the tomb had the tomb saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. If you read Luke's rendition, if you read Luke's story, his eyewitness accounts, he talks about how her and the other women were going and they were taking spices to anoint his body because obviously the effects of death is serious. It takes on quickly death's decay and its smell. And so naturally in their, in their thoughts, they're going to go and they're going to anoint him with spices to, and again, it's a show of respect and honor, but also a way of they're going still mourning his death. And so she sees the stone had been taken away from the tomb. What's her first thought? He's alive. <laughs> nope, not her first thought. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And this is most agree that that is John uh, who wrote this and penned this gospel, that he's the one who's the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, notice what she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Again, think of this. Here's Mary Magdalene. She has been, she has been healed of seven demons. God has cast out seven. I mean, she was oppressed by seven demons. Can you imagine what her life and what she would have been doing and living, the lifestyle she would have been living before Jesus came and cast out the demons from her? She's been oppressed. She's been rescued. She's been called to follow Jesus like the other disciples and the 12 that we see, these 12 men and all these others that were also following Jesus. And here, Mary is at the tomb. She, in, in this moment, it's not, oh man, he might, have be, he might be alive. I wonder. Let's see. Let's go find out. Let's look at the tomb. Let's go figure out, is he, is he, is he gone? And, and, and where did he go? Is he going to come back? Like, where is he? I want to see him. No, she's worried he's been taken. 
They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Naturally, Peter went out with other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them, I love this, because remember, think of this as John writing this. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think that's so funny. Here they are, you know, he's writing his gospel. Let me just tell you a little quick fact. I beat him to the tomb. <laughs> I, I outran Peter. Peter's a little slow, and I, I outran him, or maybe he's fast, but I'm faster. And so sure enough, he gets there. But interestingly, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So he, he doesn't even go in. John gets there first, kind of looks in. He sees some linen cloth there inside the tomb, but he stays outside. And it tells us, and maybe, maybe five minutes later, John's saying, Simon, it took him a while. You know, he's, he's struggling. He was breathing hard. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So Peter's like, all right, I'll go in. And so Peter goes into the tomb and he saw the linen. It's interesting. I want you to see these things. There's so many details to this story. We see it in the various accounts, all the details, the intricate details. Notice this. You know, there's two miracles. I've heard of this too. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not super creative. I don't think of funny jokes. If I ever come across as funny, I don't, I don't know. I, I, don't ever, I don't really try to be. Um, but I think this is funny. Uh, you know, we think of the two miracles. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I've heard there's two miracles on Easter. There's the resurrection and a single man has folded his clothes <laughs> and left it in the tomb. You know, we think, we think that's not the case. You know, if you find one of those, you've got a good one <laughs> who folds their clothes. I don't tend to fold my clothes uh, very well. Um, but when we think of this story, there's so many unique details. The, the folding of clothes, the grave clothes being folded neatly in the grave. And Peter sees this. He sees the clothes are there. And notice as it continues on in verse 7. And the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. John's not stopping. He's like, reminder, I got there first. Um, also went in and saw, but notice, actually, he's the only one. His belief might have been feeble at this point, but he's the only one that we see throughout this story that initially believes. Doesn't tell us exactly what that looked like, but John sees it, and maybe in his heart, all of a sudden, he remembered those words, I will rise. This is not the final story of my life, is not just in my death. And so John believed for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Again, they're not getting it. They're like, oh wait, he's going to rise from the dead. They're all shocked. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <laughs> they're like, all right, well, let's go back to our homes. Maybe even their separate homes at first. But verse 11 tells us, but Mary... Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Why is she weeping? Jesus isn't there, and she thinks the Lord has been taken. Maybe grave robbers have stolen the body. The Romans have done something. Maybe she, she doesn't know, but she's weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She just had a conversation with two angels, and she still doesn't know that Jesus is alive. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Maybe because of it's still early morning in darkness or the, I mean, this I think can give us hope for those of us that don't love our appearance (laughs) is maybe, you know, a glorified body is going to look a little bit better than the one we currently have. I'm not sure that maybe a little bit, uh, we can't notice fully a person, but notice this. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. I think that tells us something right there. You see, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus called himself, he referred to himself as the Good Shepherd. And in calling himself the Good Shepherd, he says, The shepherd knows his sheep, but he also says something about the sheep. And the sheep know their shepherd's voice. And so John, in John 10, when Jesus described himself as the good shepherd, he said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So as soon as he had said the words, Mary, she knew who it was. All of a sudden, her heart, the weeping, the melting away of her heart, the grief, the mourning, all that that she had gone through and wondering, where is my Lord and what has happened to him? All of a sudden, she's overcome with belief. And so it tells us, supposing him to be the gardener, as this continues, when he says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for, I mean, I'm sure she's just wrapped herself in Jesus because she's like worried. Maybe he's going to go away again. Don't leave me. Please don't leave me. Don't go anywhere. I was worried about you. So she's clinging to Jesus for I have not. And he says, for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So sure enough, she goes exactly, and the other women, they go and they proclaim this to the other disciples. Now, just a quick side note on this story as we're looking at these characters. We're seeing Mary right now in her perspective. But I want you to think about this. Like, if you're, because many, many people, opponents to the resurrection story, would argue over the fact of, did it really happen? That this most, probably the most predominant argument about the resurrection and trying to discount the resurrection is that it was made up, that these are just made-up stories. The disciples made it up. We, the, Jesus, historical fact, really lived. He really died. The resurrection, no, no, no. He's dead. He's in a tomb. And so the, 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 the approach to trying to argue against the resurrection is saying the disciples made it all up. Now, if you're going to make up stories about something and you're going to tell this story, why would you put all these intricate details in here? You're talking about linen cloths being folded up, and you're telling us that the very first, if you're going to make up a story, why would you ever have Mary Magdalene of all the women and all the people to be the one who is the first to see Jesus? 
You see, in that culture, in that time, in first century um, uh, um, Near Eastern uh, life, in the Middle East, you, women were not even allowed, to, they were not allowed to be an eyewitness in a court of law. They would not count that as an eyewitness account. They did not viewed like they are today. Um, they were lower in a class in that, in that society, and they were considered not until you see this in the Bible throughout Jesus affirming this for these women and showing them, like, here, I'm going to let you be the first witnesses to me as the women go to the tomb that morning. You see, Jesus, again, was using his story and his sovereign will and his sovereign plan. Here, this woman, if like you wouldn't write this story in, you wouldn't have the women be the ones who were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, unless that's exactly how it happened. You see, and that's why that's in our text. They would have written it this way because that's what happened. And so here, Mary She's questioning, she's wondering, she doesn't know. What, are the, what have the disciples been doing over the past few hours, the past few days? They've been doubting. They ran, they flee. They're fearful of their life. They, they leave and they hide. And we know that they leave and hide because we see this as we continue on in our story. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked. Why are the doors locked? Why do you lock your doors? where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. They're still fearful. They're still worried they're going to be lynched or they're going to be put on a cross. They're worried for their lives, so they're hiding. They go back to their lives and they're hiding and they're fearful. The door is locked. It tells us, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And here as he commissions them, we're going to look at this in a second. He's going to commission these disciples for mission. This is not to say that they have this authority to forgive sins and to not and to withhold forgiveness. No, that's going to be their message. They're going to proclaim this gospel to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you don't believe, you're not going to be forgiven. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus proclaimed it even at the beginning. We looked at that in Mark earlier in the year. Jesus came, he said, "Repent and believe the gospel." So the disciples are hiding. What leads the disciples and Mary to radical faith? What leads them to transformed lives that are fearful and hiding? Leads them to, as we, if you were to keep reading and look at the book of Acts, who are going to be men who are going to spread out and share the gospel throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and literally as they go to Africa and Europe and India, all the way to China. As the gospel spreads, what gives them this kind of boldness? What led men and women to be in hiding and fear and all of a sudden now to be proclaimers of this gospel? The resurrection. Jesus was alive. 
You see, this was what changes everything for them, what gives them the, the motivation. And, the, and then as Jesus gives them himself and he says, here, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to indwell you. And he's going to, when you receive him, you're going to have power. You're going to preach and you're going to have boldness and you're going to do these things. Why? Because they knew and believed and held confidence in the fact that Jesus was, in fact, alive. You see, Peter has denied that even he knew Jesus when approached by people. Thomas, look at Thomas here. As Thomas, as one of the twelve, was not with them, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and my place and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I need to see Jesus for myself. He doesn't believe Mary's testimony. He doesn't believe the other disciples' testimony. He wants to see Jesus risen from the dead with his own two eyes. Notice verse 26, eight days later, he went a full week saying, I don't believe. I'm not sure. I need to see this. It tells us eight days later, his disciples were inside. Look at this. They're inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Such a great story. Jesus came and stood among them and said, I don't know how he got there. <laughs> the glorified body is special. And so here, Jesus, with a full body that needed food, that was going to still eat, he was going to eat fish with them, uh, he's going to talk with them, share meal with them, a bodily, this is so important, I want you to hear this, this is so important, Christians believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, not just a spiritual resurrection. The disciples could kind of go like, look, it was a spiritual resurrection, his, his soul is now with the Lord, he is risen. No, no, no. They believed in a bodily, like he had a body, flesh and bones. And we see the fact here as we see this with Thomas. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Can you hear this? Hear this. This is the grace of God. Jesus doesn't go, Thomas, man, it's been a week. I've been around. You don't believe that your, your friends when they say that I'm alive? You don't believe the women and Mary when they've told you? He doesn't look at him with condemnation, condemnation. He doesn't look at him with like, come on, Thomas, why are you doubting? That's going to be the nickname you're going to get for the rest of history. Instead of what he's about to say. So Jesus comes at him with such grace and says, touch my nail-scarred hands. Touch my side. See, it is I. I'm alive. And he challenges me, he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. So there's only two responses to Jesus, belief, unbelief. And listen to this. I, I, almost many commentators believe that John's gospel leads to this pronouncement. This is one of the greatest pronouncements that we have of who Jesus is in all of the gospels. Thomas quote, doubting Thomas, with the, one of the greatest pronouncements of who Jesus is, says, when he looks at Jesus and Jesus has revealed himself to him, what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Notice this, blessed 
This is us. Those who do believe, blessed, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Whew, that's a lot already. That's the first point, but we've looked at the whole text. We're going to come back to a few things. See what God is doing through this empty tomb and how its effects on Mary, the other women, the disciples, Thomas. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And that changed everything for them. These disciples all of a sudden go from fearful, doubting, unbelief even, and dejection to radical faith in God. And they're going to go and they're going to proclaim him. And I want you to see a couple of other things in this passage that I want to pick up on this morning. One is, the, and the second one is this, this second point for us this morning. When we think of the effects of the empty tomb, we, we, here's another effect. We enjoy the blessing of a new family. We get, the, this is an effect of the empty tomb. We get to enjoy the blessing of a new family. Look at this passage again. As we see when Jesus is interacting with Mary, as he's interacting with her, what does he say? Look at verse, uh, as he's telling her not to cling to me. He says this right here. He says, look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, notice, and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Notice what happens here. Listen, I had read this like over about, I think, 108 times in this gospel, just John. Jesus, we talk about Jesus talking about the Father and saying the Father and the Father's will and how he relates to the Father. No time except for this one does he refer to the disciples as God as their Father. We have the story, we have the, the, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. But this is the first time where he's like talking to them, and this is the first time we see this in the Gospel of John, as this effect of God is your Father. And notice the connection too. He now tells them, this is the first time we see this in John's gospel as well. He says this, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father. You see, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, this empty tomb, we're able to enjoy through faith in Christ alone. We're able to enjoy the blessing of a new family. Through Christ's work of redemption on the cross and through his resurrection, these disciples are brought into the family of God by faith. Look at the very beginning of John's gospel. So we're still in the same book, still in John. John chapter 1. Look at verse 12 and 13. One of the greatest probably prologues there is in in all of Scripture as it models the picture of Genesis 1 as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But look look at verses 12 and 13. Notice this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. You see, we, there is this new family that is formed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that because he now invites all who trust him to be a part of his family. He calls you brother. He calls you sister. 
we're able to look and come to our, Him as our Father. Think what that means. I don't know what your father was like. Your father might have been the worst person in the world, or he might have been the best father ever. But can you imagine, though, here, Jesus is saying, you can come to me, you can come to God like a father. You can go to him in the middle of the night. Listen, my kids, as much as I might look like I'm annoyed when they come to my bed in the middle of the night, I never want them to think that they can't approach me. And when they need to come to me and ask me of anything, I might not give them, I'm not God, so my response might not be perfect. But, I, but the picture is that, that God is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and lay, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, come to me with your burdens. Come to me with your anxieties. Cast them to me. I will carry them for you. You can approach me. Come to the throne of grace and find help in time of trouble, as Hebrews tells us. This God is inviting us to relationship with Him. Romans 8. I love Romans 8. You feel free to read it on your own at some time and memorize it even. In Romans 8, verses 14 and 17, we get an amazing picture of adoption. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then, notice this, then heirs. Heirs of God and, fel- and, uh, God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. We don't deserve any of that. We didn't do what Jesus did, but yet here in God's grace and His love, and because He's overcome the grave, He invites you into relationship and says, I, will, I want to bless you with the same blessing I would give my own one and only Son. What is for Him is for you. And He invites you into relationship and says, I want you to be my children. You see, and this is the beauty of the church. The church is the body of Christ. It is there's, there's this fact of as the purchased blood of Christ, as He has purchased our pardon, as He has freed us and brought us into His family, we, as the church, as other fellow believers, become brothers and sisters in Christ. I used to kind of make fun of, of people when they call you, hey, brother, brother Eric. I'm like, that's a little weird, you know. I'm like, it's not something I normally refer to. But this picture of that we are bro- as as as. We are united by faith in Christ alone, that that unites us together. Listen, you were created not to follow Jesus on your own. You were created to be a part of a new family. This is a church family. This is the importance of the church. This is the importance of the body of Christ that we collectively together encourage one another, build one another up, love one another, serve one another. Listen, over the past few months, I've gotten to watch as Different community groups have just lavished their love and their grace and their time for a family who is struggling, who is going through a crisis, had a difficult pregnancy. Many of you have been praying for, um, for Caitlin and Justin as they were having a very serious high-risk pregnancy and how they're downtown for weeks because of, um, of their child being born so early and how many of you were stepping up to help them to provide a meal to step in and say, look, I can help you with the car, or I can help you with this, or do you need something? How can we serve? Listen, that's what it looks like to be in a church family. It's when we're there to meet one another. Listen, you are not meant to live this life alone. You are meant to be in a family. One of the best ways to do that in Redeemer is through community groups. 
We have these groups that meet during the week on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And if we keep growing, we'll have more options and more nights of the week in different homes. But this is the place where you get to live out community. Have any of you ever been to Mere Woods ever before uh, over in, near um, San Francisco? Have you ever seen a great sequoia ever in your life in person? Uh, I remember when I first got the opportunity to see these great sequoias. You, I mean, it blows. It literally is mind-blowing. You're like, there is some tree that's living that is that big. That you, I mean, you can't stick your arms out. You're not still even close to how wide this tree is. You know what's interesting about the sequoia trees is their roots actually aren't very deep. The roots, you'd think, here's this huge tree, giant. I mean, 300, 400 feet, I don't even know how, 500, I really don't have a clue how tall they are. They're just massive. And you would think, that thing requires big roots. I think, you see if the masters, just the other day, three trees fell in the middle of the round. Thankfully, no one was hurt. And you think of these, these giant sequoias, you know what's keeping them standing? Even though they don't have deep roots? Their roots mingle with the other trees. And the other trees collectively hold themselves up together. There's this picture, and I think it's such a good picture, of the church and the family of God as we, as we are establishing our roots in Christ Jesus our Lord. We looked at this as we were looking at the parable of the soils earlier in Mark. But as we think of the church and the body of Christ and the family of God, how we our roots should be, we should be spreading wide to each other, encouraging one another. And so when one stumbles, there's another there to encourage and to, hey, man, listen, let me help you. I know you're going through a lot or you're struggling in sin. Listen, I want to pray for you. How can I help you? Can I send a text message? Can I remind you about the promises of God? Can I, how can I love and serve you? You see, this is the point. We because there is the effects of this empty tomb, all of a sudden Christ has risen from the dead, the, the dead, and now He invites us into this new family. And it's one that we can enjoy the blessings of. Finally and thirdly is this, the effects of an empty tomb. There's many more, I'm sure, but this is the, the last one for today. Is listen, we begin to live for a greater purpose. Because the tomb is empty, everything changes. You see, my sense of worth when I was younger was wrapped up in what I thought, what people thought of me. That's all I cared about. When I was in high school, I know all of our high school experiences are different. Mine was one where I don't really remember a time where I was like really made fun of or didn't fit in. I, I, I just, but I fit in everywhere, but the problem was is I shouldn't have fit in everywhere. I would fit in with the sports because I played sports. I love sports. So I would fit in with the sports crowd. But I was also the chaplain of our class. And I don't even think I was a believer at the time. I don't really think I was. But I looked like it. I could talk like it. I could act like it. I was a good actor. And so sure enough, I just could fit in everywhere. Because why did I fit in everywhere? Because I cared so much about what people thought. So I could probably tell one crowd one thing and go tell another crowd another thing. I mean, this has been a battle for probably a lot of my life of just being a people pleaser. Let me just keep everybody happy. Let's just make everybody happy. And you quickly learn in leadership, you can't make everybody happy. That's why they say it's lonely at the top. But see, I could easily was wrapping up my identity in who I thought, who I was, and really more importantly, sadly, what other people thought of me is what I was wrapping my identity in. Was I a good enough athlete? Was I a good enough singer? Could I, could I fit in here? Could I do this? Could I do that? And so, listen, we can do this easily with our lives. We wrap ourselves up in an identity. We wrap our identity in 
being a parent, being a, a, a businessman or a businesswoman. We can wrap ourselves up in the things of this world, and the materialism is so drawing us to those things. The materialism is coming after your heart. This is why the deceptiveness of riches is so deceiving. And here's the, the effect of the empty tomb, is it calls us to something greater than the things of this world. It calls us to something beyond this world. And Jesus is inviting them, and this is what Jesus is. He is a sending God. Look back at our passage in, in John 20. I'm in John 1, so I need to go back. So John 20. And Jesus is, listen to this, this is really cool too. Again, who's the first herald of this message? Who's the first one to be the evangelist as it were, to the others. It was Mary Magdalene. She is told and commissioned by God to go and tell the others that I'm alive. Go pronounce this to them. But look at verse 21. As Jesus stands among the disciples, revealing himself to them, look what he says in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me even so I am sending you. You see, you are all, we are all, if we're a follower of Jesus, the effect of the tomb leads us to a greater purpose, and that greater purpose is to live sent. We live on a mission. This is John's, in John's gospel, this is the great commission for him. Live sent. As, I have, as, as the Father has sent me into the world, talking about Jesus, has sent Jesus into the world, so am I sending you. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in, G, in John chapter 17, he prays this for them. As I, I'm not, I pray that you will not take them from the world, but leave them in the world, but to leave them to make a difference. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A, ci a city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. You're the salt of the earth. Listen, we're left here with mission. We're left with purpose. The empty tomb gives us purpose. It gives us a mission beyond ourselves. And so we live with a greater purpose. I don't even know how to say this guy's name, but I think it's Jaroslav Pelikan. He says this, If Christ is not risen... Nothing else matters. And if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. You see, if Christ is risen from the grave, that should be the central theme of our life. We live on a mission that's greater than ourselves, that's bigger than our work, bigger than our identity. As a, we can love the Lord and pursue the Lord as a mom or a dad. We can pursue in our work, but what becomes first and paramount is the Lord I fear many of us live this life selfishly, materialistically, wanting both. Listen to the words as Jesus said it to Thomas. Don't disbelieve, only believe. You either unbelieve or you believe. Are you following this Jesus? C.T. Studd was a missionary to China, India, and Africa. You probably have heard this one phrase, but I want to read the whole um, poem to you this morning. He said, there's two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone. Bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say "Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's an extra stanza written, and I want to end with this. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. I want to ask you a question. What would you do? Don't have to answer this out loud. But what would you do if I told you Jesus was coming back tomorrow? What's your first thought? Let me clean up my life. Let me, let me pray until God comes back. What would I do if I told you Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Tomorrow's it. Not you're going to die. Like, he's coming back. Returning for his bride. What would you do? As I thought of that, I, I don't even know if I had the right answer myself, my first thought. I think the right answer would be, how many people can I tell with the little bit of time I have left? I got 24 hours. Who do I need to tell first? Who needs to know? Who doesn't know yet? Who doesn't know Christ? Who doesn't heard? Who hasn't experienced life in His name? I would hope that my heart's desire and my longing for people would be to share that news and to live this sent life. As the Father says, as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. Because here's the promise of His Word. He is going to return. And He says He will return soon. Soon is a big word. We don't know what that means. Obviously, it means at least a couple thousand years. Uh, it might be another 5,000 years. It might be tomorrow. Who knows? Yes, there's two responses to that. One is this. If you're far from the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Draw near. Put your faith in this risen one. But if that is already the case for you, and I think it is for many of you in this room, how are you living your life? You see, the, the effect of the to empty tomb says, I have to live for something greater. If the tomb is empty, it changes everything. You see, some would argue that the empty tomb doesn't matter. But Paul would very much disagree, and I would, agree, I would very much disagree with him. 
Because listen to Romans 10.9. Some of you have already memorized it before probably. He says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what's the next phrase? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, it's not a matter of how much faith you have. It's not a matter of how much you can do to merit salvation. It is all because of what he has done. He's paid it all. He's risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. Satan and its power has no hold on you any longer. The tomb is empty. Listen, Jesus won. Victory is assured. God has overcome the grave. The tomb is empty. So listen, where is the object of your faith? Is it in you? You will fail. I will fail. For about 15, about. 12 years of my life, my faith was in what I had said and what I was doing, and I was hoping that God would accept me. But it wasn't until I was 17 when I realized that my sinfulness and my self-righteousness and my goodness was never going to get me good enough with God. I couldn't ever pay back the debt of my sin. I needed to put my trust in His complete and full payment on the cross and that He had overcome the grave. And so I would encourage you to pray what Paul has said here in Romans 10, 9, if you will just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, do you believe that he is Lord? Do you believe, like Thomas said, my Lord and my God? Do you believe that the tomb is empty? Put your faith in a risen Savior, and he will grant you salvation and life forevermore. So you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear what is lying ahead in your life, because there is nothing that God cannot do. He has overcome the grave. Listen, he paid the price. Trust him today. Believe in Christ alone. Place your trust in him. In the words of Tim Keller, the determining factor in your relationship with God is not your past, but Christ's past. Not your record, but Christ's record. He's the perfect one. We're the imperfect one. But as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin. Jesus became sin on the cross who knew no sin. He lived perfectly sinless, without sin, never once a bad thought, never once an evil deed. He who knew no sin became sin. How and why? So that because of Christ, because of what He has done, we become the righteousness of God. We get clothed in His righteousness. You see, as again, I want to repeat it again. Tim Keller said, the determining factor in your relationship with God is not your past, but Christ's past, what he accomplished on the cross and through an empty tomb, that he is alive. It's not on your record, not on your goodness, but on Christ's perfectness. That's what saves. And so I implore, I implore you, I plead with you, place your trust in him today, and then let him transform you, like we see what happens to Mary, to the disciples, to Thomas, how it's transformed lives by the grace of God. And let that lead you into an enjoyment of a new family, a church family, of fellow believers, and let that lead you to live for a greater purpose, not just for a little while, but for the rest of your life. Only one life to live, only one. How are we going to live it? Live it for Christ alone. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, so thankful I get to call you my Father. 
Thank you that you are a father to us, that you are a loving, gracious God who came, who lived a life that we should have lived and died the death that we so deserved. I thank you for the reality of the resurrection, that you are, as the video we were looking at earlier, you are the center of history. Everything hinges on Easter morning, that you are not dead, that you are alive, that you defeated the grave, that you give us hope of eternal life because of your payment, paying the wrath, paying for the wrath of God for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. What a Savior we, are, we have. God, I thank you that we can have hope as we're going to sing together, I pray that we'll sing it with all of our hearts, that you have already won. You have paid the price for sin. You have defeated the grave. And so that the trials and the circumstances, the difficulties of our life, we can look at those things with confidence because our Christ, our Savior, our Lord has defeated the grave that you have already won. The, the end of the story is written. We can have hope. In that. So help us to believe with all of our heart. As Paul is calling us to say, to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our heart that you, God, have risen from the grave, we can have eternal life in his name. Father, I pray that no person would leave today without that assurance of a hope for tomorrow of a hope beyond the grave. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending his son. Help us to believe that and sing with a greater passion and a greater love because of this love that you've lavished on us. Father, help us. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to experience the difficulties and trials of life with the confidence of knowing that you are ruling and reigning, not in a tomb, on a throne in the highest of heavens. We love you, God, and we ask for your help in all these things. Help our unbelief. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name.